You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Tuesday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. I'm super, super, super excited about this session for two big reasons. One, I'm a huge, huge Mark Roberts fan. Like if you are thinking about go-to-market, if you think about what it means to scale a company, and if any of you here were, were part of my keynote earlier, a lot of it was influenced by some of the conversation and the work that Mark has done. And he's done here at Boston, so and a lot of you guys probably know HubSpot and the work that he's done for that. And since then, he has been a, a, a partner, managing director at Stage 2 Capital, which is doing incredible. They just got, got a bunch of funding, so you can tell more about that. And then also, if, if you're thinking about just go-to-market in general, just follow his work. So there's one thing I would say, just go and follow his work. It's fantastic. So with that, please help me welcome Mark Rivers. There you go. I'm gonna bring you around with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, first time out. Woo! This is good to be big back. So thank you for coming out. What I want to talk about today, uh, a little bit of different spin on predictable growth. I don't know if you can. I can't think of a unicorn that kind of grew up in one of these boxes, you know, selling a particular product to a market through a particular channel and got to unicorn status in that box. I bet a lot of you have gone through that. You've had to either expand, like bring a new product to market, go upstream to a new market, or introduce a new channel. And I think given today's conference, I imagine a lot of you have this different channel in mind. And that's what I want to talk about today is, I see most of these expansion opportunities fail. And um, we actually went through this at HubSpot when we went from the marketing software into the sales CRM, and I'll use it as a case study. And I stumbled across a framework a couple of years ago that I've been using with a lot of businesses to dramatically increase the, the success rate and speed to pull off these expansions. And so what I usually see happen here is, you know, we're sitting here, we're a $50 million business, and we want to go to $80 million next year. And we do all our bottoms-up analysis for our annual planning, and we find out that the green box, the product that we sell to the market that we know how to sell to, for the channel we know how to sell, is only gonna get us to 75 million. So then someone says, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we build a new product and upsell it into our existing install base? And so we'll go to next week's board meeting and tell them that we're gonna get five million from that next year. Come, that a lot of you have walked through that before. And it fails. And it's weird that like, when we started the business, if any of you have been at the idea stage of the business, and like, yeah, this idea for this, this product that we sell this particular market, no one walks into like a seed investor and says, and I'm gonna sell five million this year. That's not even your first goal. We've evolved as entrepreneurs to adopt like the lean startup. We're gonna get in a room with a couple of, uh, of engineers and we talk to our customers all the time and learn. And we don't know if it's gonna take three months or six months or 12 months to find product market fit. But for some reason, when we get to 50 million in revenue and we're gonna launch a new product, we just think that we, can, we know how to build it and we know how to sell it right out of the gate. And that's the thinking that I wanna challenge here 
and provide a framework uh, by which we can do that more predictably. So the, the main motto here is don't learn while you scale. In my experience, learning while scaling fails a lot. Instead, learn and then scale. And while it may feel like you're getting to where you want to go slower, if you look at this as a two-year journey, your likelihood of getting to where you want to be in two years, I think, is much higher, and you will get there faster if you follow the model. Okay? So, it's funny. Oh, the, the reason why I think this happens, and so another, um, another mistake I see is, okay, the board bought the plan. The board bought the fact that we're going to go from 50 to 80, we're going to do 50 to 75 in our core product market, and we're going to build this new product and do 5 million out of that. The board bought it. So now we're going to do it. So what are we going to do? Marketers, go build a pitch deck and revise the website. Sales enablement, train the 40 salespeople how to sell this new thing. Let's launch it at the conference. And we launch it at the conference. We get all 40 salespeople trained, ready to go. And the product doesn't work, and we don't know how to sell it. And we actually go flat. right? We train 40 salespeople on a product that doesn't quite work yet, and we have no clue how to sell it. And now what was used to be 40 hours a week of very productive time is 30 hours a week selling what we know and wasted 10 hours a week. So instead, if what we do is say, okay, let's create this small team, this small cross-functional team, just like when we were a seed business, of two salespeople, one customer success person, a product manager, and a couple engineers, and let's put them in a corner somewhere. And let's let them figure this out. And the reason why that succeeds is the learning at bats, every call we're doing is not spread over 40 salespeople. Those two reps are getting all 40 of them. So they're seeing the patterns faster. And the product marketers, managers right there, and the engineers are right there watching. So instead of training the whole team and hoping that this works, we create this small cross-functional team. The other thing that we get is we get to pick the people on that team to be optimal for that journey. The salesperson, your number one salesperson, who shows up at the company and says, give me the pitch deck and the comp plan and my territory and let me go make a lot of money is a terrible choice for this team. I've done it. I did it in this HubSpot CRM. I picked that person and it was terrible. He was a cancer on the team. But that person who's like, you know what? I'm kind of bored of the funnel. I'm hitting my quota every year. I'm making good money. But I just want to do something different. I want to like create something scratch. I'm actually thinking about quitting the company and starting my own business or starting something earlier. Perfect fit. Perfect fit. So not only do we put all the at-bats on a smaller set of heads and brains so we learn faster, we get to optimize the team selection as well. Okay. So it's funny that we did this with the HubSpot CRM, and I'm going to use that as a case study and tell you all the tactics that we did. But then three years later, I left and joined the faculty at Harvard Business School. And I stumbled across this research, rigorous research that has a framework on how to do this. And I was like, almost fell off my chair when I read it because it's exactly what we did with the HubSpot CRM. I, I guess we're recording, but you know, sometimes like the academic stuff is like mad, that we don't find that applicable in the practice. I, Shouldn't be saying that, I guess. I hope I have a job at Harvard as well. But you know, this one was like, it really resonated with me. And so I want to show you what it is, and then I want to bring it to life through, it's this gentleman, Michael Tushman, who's actually a well-renowned uh, professor. And it basically, it was these three components. 
which is develop an overarching strategy, hold tension at the top, and embrace inconsistency. And thank you for the photos. I will actually get you these um, slides as well, so don't feel like you have a lot of pressure to take notes. All right, so let's go through each one of those. Devel uh, set an overarching strategy. So um, Halloween Darmesh sat me down and said, hey, Mark, I want you to team up with Christopher O'Donnell. He's one of our really strong product uh, managers, product manager leaders. And we, at this point, we've done like 80 million in revenue. We've scaled really nicely with marketing software. We want to go into the CRM space. We want to go into sales. So team up with, with CTA, that was what we called him, and figure out how to go in that direction. So problem number one is this is what our homepage was at the time. And I see companies when they move into this space, they either, they kind of swing on one side of the fence or the other too aggressively. So either, either they don't lean into the new strategy and they keep this, this, the product, the, the, home, the homepage like this. And if I'm trying to sell the VPs of sales and sales reps to CRM, I got a shot with this homepage. Or they like swing really aggressively, yeah, we're, and they promote the CRM everywhere, all over the homepage, and like all these people who are selling the marketing software and paying all the bills for the company are like, what the heck, do I even matter anymore? So that's Tushman's first point is, we need to come up with an overarching strategy that encompasses the, the existing and also the new. And that's what it looked like for us is we moved away from the inbound marketing meme, which we had invested a decade in, wrote the book on, did the conference in, on the LinkedIn group, on the first 10 pages of Google, and we shifted to growth. Because growth encompassed both the existing inbound marketing position as well as our new journey of sales, okay? So that was number one. Number two, hold tension at the top. Oftentimes when one of these projects gets initiated, the board bought the plan, we gotta build a new product, it's stuffed. It's stuffed down in the org structure. It reports to the director, it reports to the VP, who reports to the SVP, who reports to the chief product officer, who reports to the CEO. And that project to succeed is going to need some political protection. They are gonna need access to resources that the core business, who is so important because they pay all the bills, doesn't wanna give them. And so we as the leader need to think about the structure of this organization, not by P&L value, by strategic value. And when we look at the value of each team by strategic value, suddenly that, that new experiment team needs to go way up top. Okay, so that's what happened with HubSpot. This is what our team looked like when we were just in marketing. All the C-suite executives report to the CEO. And then we moved into a multi-product organization. We put all the marketing executives under a COO who reported the CEO, Halligan. And this little CRM project with literally 12 people on it while we were an $80 million business reported directly to the CEO. And Halligan had the authority, had the, the visibility into all the tensions that were happening. And sometimes he opted for us and created space for us. And sometimes he protected the core business. But as CEO, it was his call. And that was critical. Okay? The third one, which I think I love the most, and this is where I've been doing a lot of my own framework development, and I'm going to share it with you here, is embrace inconsistency, okay? So um, expand the message, um, hold the tension at the top, and the third one is embrace the inconsistency. And I talked about this at the beginning, which is we're moving into this new product, or we're moving in this new market, most organizations, the first goal they set is a revenue goal. Let's do five million. I couldn't disagree more. And again, 
We don't come up with an idea and sit down with three engineers and say, what's our first goal? $5 million. We used to do that in the 80s and 90s as entrepreneurs, but thanks to Eric Reese and Steve Blank and the Lean Startup, we don't do that anymore. We know that we have to do product market fit first before we scale, okay? So we need to embrace inconsistency. Do not measure the success of this new unit, this new product on revenue first. Measure your core business on profits and revenue, but not the new units. Measure that on how fast you're learning. Okay, so I wanna present a framework to you that helps you to understand when a new unit like this is ready to scale and how fast. And I call it the science of scale. Okay, so when I ask a general manager that's kicking something like this off, or if I ask a new entrepreneur, when are you ready to scale? Pretty much everyone says when I have product market fit. And that term didn't exist 20 years ago. So kudos to the, the, the operators and, the, and the, the academics to, to make that, I, I couldn't agree more. However, when I ask those people, what is product market fit? I get 10 different answers. I don't know what you think it is. What is product market fit? And unfortunately, half the answers is a revenue number. I have product market fit when I hit a million in revenue. Couldn't disagree more. Okay, so now if you, if you Google product market fit, there's a pretty good Wikipedia page out there. There are some really smart people, like I think it's Ben Horowitz, who's like, you can just feel it when you have like a lot of pull in the market and you have a, a workable product in a big market. And it's, you know, I'm never gonna criticize Ben Horowitz. I mean, you know, good stuff. But like, this is fear for me, I like it to be a little more factual. That feels squishy. Now, my buddy Sean Ellis, he says, when you survey your customers, if your product didn't exist, how disappointed would you be? That's a survey that he created. And if 40% say very disappointed, then you have product market fit. That's what he says. I like that a lot more. Quantitative and based on their success with product. My only beef with it is surveys are riddled with false positives. That's my beef with it. So when I think about what metric am I gonna hinge product market fit on, I like customer attention. Right? I like that someone bought my product, used it for some period of time, and rebought it. Not perfect, but in my opinion, the best. One problem, we don't know retention for like a year and we don't have that time. So one critical thing we have to do when we're starting out a new unit like this, whether it's going upstream to the enterprise or whether we're introducing a new product or whether we're standing up account-based marketing, account-based selling as a new way to go to market. The first indicator is we need to figure out what the leading indicator to retention is. I believe retention is the best metric to indicate product market fit. We don't have time to wait, but if we can figure out something, some behavior, some observation with our customer that happens in their first 30 days that correlates with retention, that's a really powerful observation. And now I can know if I have product market fit within a month of selling accounts, okay? Now, what does this leading indicator retention look like? I, you, I, some of you may know I'm an engineer by training. I started my career coding 
and accidentally found my way into sales. So you can see remnants of my engineering training in some of the stuff that I think up here. And so one of those is the way that I frame leading indicators of retention. It's when key percent of customers do e-event within T time. So I isolate it down to three variables. Okay, so let me make this more human by giving a couple examples. Slack, 70% of customers send 2,000 team messages within the first month. Dropbox, 85% of customers back up their device in an hour. HubSpot, and this is, for the Slack and Dropbox, I read up and talked to some of them. I think they're pretty accurate. HubSpot, I mean, I lived through that, and this is absolutely correct. When 80% of customers use five or more features in the platform, then they were likely to stick around forever. When they did not, they are very likely to join. Okay, so those are examples of good unicorns of leading indicators of retention. So what is yours? At least it's a framework to think about, okay? Measuring it, this eye chart is very useful to measure it. What this is is a cohort analysis that's organized by the month in which we acquired the customer. And every month we're reporting out what percent have hit the leading indicator of retention. This illustrates product market fit earlier than any other chart I can see. And if you're moving into a new product or a new market, this is, this is kind of the first slide I want the board meeting. I never see it the first slide. They show me the P&L, and the P&L is what happened nine months ago. This is what happened today. And so what this is showing is this company acquired 24 customers in January, and after two months, 27% had achieved the leading indicator of retention. If it was Slack, 27% sent 2,000 key messages. After six months, 39% did. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good if you're a collaboration software and, and less than half of your folks have sent 2,000 team messages. But they made a bunch of changes. And by September, they had 50, they acquired 50 customers. And after two months, 68% had sent 2,000 team messages. If you look down the column, that's quite an improvement. So I would say they got product market fit around the October, November timeframe. Okay. Um, okay, so that's the summary. Little, you know, a little more than just like we have a workable product in a big market, right? And, and, and very much honed in on your data, not someone else's opinion, your data. And what a wonderful North Star. I mean, think about Slack in the early days. What if they said in the early days of Slack, our first goal is five million in revenue. Imagine the business they would have built. Versus what if in the first days of Slack, they were like, our first goal is to get everybody to send 2,000 team messages. It feels so much better. So what's your lead indicator attention as you expand? Are we ready to scale now? No. Notice during product market fit, I didn't say anything about profitability and scalability. Some of you may know David Cancel. He ran product for us at HubSpot. He's now the founder of Drift. And in the early days of Drift, he was actually flying to onboard customers, first customers, that were paying him $50 a month. That does not scale when the CEO is onboarding customers in person that are paying you $50 a month. But it is beautiful behavior at the product market fit stage. Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator says, do unscalable things early. It is hard to come up with a business idea and a product idea and to get most people to realize the value when they use it. So throw everything in the kitchen sink at them during the product market fit stage. But then you're not ready to scale once you prove that. All we proved at the product market fit phase 
is I'm going to sign up 100 customers, and a month later, 80% of them are going to be really satisfied with our product. Now I have to prove that I can do that with scale. And that's what I call go-to-market fit. And we usually talk about that, especially a lot of people in the room are in like SaaS and software. We usually talk about that with unit economics. We usually don't talk about it with gap accounting profitability. We usually use unit economics because those isolate the costs that scale with revenue growth, as opposed to the overhead that doesn't. And I think a lot of you are well-read and there's plenty of literature on the different unit economics out there, LTV to CAC of three payback periods, the magic number from Bessemer, pick your favorite flavor. But similar to the retention, we also have to figure out our leading indicators to unit economics. So as an example, like one that probably many of you use is your lifetime value to cost to customer acquisition ratio. The industry tends to like go around a, a number of three. I can't hire a salesperson and be like, and they're like, hey, what's my job? I'm like, create an LTV to CAC greater than three. I can't tell a 28-year-old salesperson to do that. So what I have to do is I have to extract that goal, that output goal, to meaningful sales and marketing activities that I can comprehend to understand my business model of design. Right? So for example, lifetime value is how much do they pay you, ACV, your customers, times your gross margin divided by your churn. I can extract that back. And I can extract the cost back to my marketing cost plus my sales cost per customer. And I can extract my marketing cost back to what's how many costs per lead divided by the close rate of those leads. And I can extract my sales cost to how much do I pay my reps every month divided by the number of customers they close or quarter. And I can extract the number of customers they close to the number of leads or opportunities they create times the close rate. So now I've actually extracted that goal of unit economics back to inputs that I can understand in the early days of my product business model definition. Is that going to happen? No, but at least I have a working model. And now I can instrument that in addition to all the other things I'm instrumenting in my dashboard, is I can instrument what that goal is with the red line, and as long as I'm operating and the blue line stays above the red line, I'm on the right pace. And again, all of our peers are making the decisions, is my business working, is my business working? They're making that decision based on the quarterly P&L that's reported out to the board, and again, that's what happened nine months ago. This is what's happening today. So now if we put these two things together, we have a, re a real-time view that this thing's working, and we are ready to scale. We have product market fit and go-to-market fit. So the last question is how fast? We are ready to scale. We've, we've, we've done so much better than our peers who were like, you know, the product works, I've got five beta customers, I'm ready to scale. I'm still worried. When you do what we just did, I'm really happy. And I'm not saying we have to go slower. I've seen people move through that in three months. I've seen it take nine months. But I'm taking a position that if you scale before that, your failure rate is exponentially higher and I'd rather you work on these things, okay? But now we're ready, how fast should we scale? And I, I've definitely seen it in like the big company arena. I've done some consulting for BCG with the big folks and they tend to like train a lot of people at once. I've definitely seen it pretty much 100% of the time in the startup ecosystem. I can't tell you how many times 
I meet this founder and they have 20 people at the company and there's 10 engineers and three salespeople and a marketer and two customer success people and two support people and they're doing great and they raise $10 million for a series A. And I'm like, cool, what are you gonna do next? And they're like, oh, we just hired 15 reps in one month. Holy cow, dude. They had three reps. They all do this. Why? 15 reps, it's because the spreadsheet told us to. Do you know what it takes, do you know how many interviews it takes to hire 15 reps in a month when you only have three? Do you know how many lead flow you have to increase? Who's gonna manage these people? The average rep to manager ratio in the industry is eight to one, now you have six, 17 reps. No one's thinking about this stuff. So scale is not about this, I know why they do it, it's like, they, they negotiate this big valuation and the VC bought it, now they have to do it, and they freak out, they hire all these reps all at once. So the, the pace, the, the scale is not about this one-time lump sum hiring at the beginning of the fiscal year, or right after a raise. It's about a pace. It's about a pace. It's like, okay, we're ready to scale. Let's add one rep a month, or two reps every other month, and let's do that for six months. Are we going too fast or too slow? Watch the leading indicators. These leading indicator retention and unit economics, that becomes our speedometer. So if we do this for six months and the speedometer stays green, let's go to two reps every month for six months. And if it stays green, let's go to four reps a month. And then we'll go to eight reps a month. And guess what? You're a unicorn. You've built a billion dollar department. Very scientifically, very predictable. Okay? So that answers the question of like, how fast and when. And the last thing that gets spit out of the framework is a lot of direction around the order of operations and priorities in your go-to-market system design. Okay, at the product market fit phase, I talked about how that coin-operated rep, that's your number one rep in your big department, is a terrible hire at the product market fit phase. You want someone that's kind of like a product manager slash account executive hybrid. They have the, like, the abilities that a product manager does to talk to 20 customers in a week and see the patterns and communicate those patterns to the engineers. Most reps don't have that. But they're unlike a traditional product manager in the sense that they don't like, get squeezy when they talk about money. They can actually move a deal forward. They're out there. They're hard to find. Usually you find them in startups. Sometimes they're sales engineers. But those are good people to pick. And I don't want to talk about like a scalable demand gen channel at that point. I just need like 50 introductions. I don't need to talk about optimal pricing and compensation, right? But once we hit product market fit and get to the go to market fit, then that does change. We need a playbook. We need at least one demand gen channel. We do need to get the commission plan and the pricing right. We don't need that in product market fit phase. I'm just trying to prove that the product I created is going to create value for our customers. I price for commitment, not for profitability. And then the final piece is once we have those, now we can introduce a management layer. Now we need multiple demand gen channels. We have to think about career growth for our folks. There's a whole other set of issues. The point is that not only does the framework tell us where we're at, but it tells us the implications on our go-to-market system design. What should we be talking about and what shouldn't we be talking about, okay? So hopefully that um, gives you, uh, brings uh, Tushman's, uh, per, uh, how to bring these new products or go into new markets. Um, the last little piece is like, what happens if it works? <laughs> you gotta figure out what to do. And this was a huge issue for HubSpot because it did work. And 
Before long, we had more, quickly, we had more customers on the HubSpot CRM than the marketing software because we took a freemium approach, a PLG approach. And suddenly, but the thing is, remember, we kept them as a, a little different team in a different side of the office, and people who were using the CRM called up our support line, and the support people didn't even know anything about our CRM. That's like the, one of the disadvantages of success that comes out of that. So you got to quickly move here, and you make decisions of either do we train the core team because our customer is the same? Do we keep these separate because we're talking to different buyers? Or do we disrupt our business model? That choice is not chosen much. That's what we chose to do. And I think a lot of good companies do that. How does that happen? It's like when people quit in the core model, you replace them with a new model. That's the best way to disrupt yourself. And suddenly, when before the, the HubSpot CRM, most of the sales at HubSpot happened by someone downloading an ebook and went to an inside sales team, you demoed the product, you bought it, then you could adopt. The CRM was you, you, you came to their website, you ended, landed in a CRM, you used it for a month, and then you tripped the payment wire and you called a rep. Now most of the sales happen that way. Cap goes way down, sales cycles go way down, and you're able to disrupt the entire business. Perfect. All right. So that brings that model to life. Just a couple things on what I'm up to, as Sandra mentioned. Um, we just announced the, the completion of our second fund. So after HubSpot, I joined the, the uh, faculty at Harvard Business School. I've been teaching for eight years. And, um, and then uh, a kid at Bessemer came up with this idea for the first VC fund running back by CROs and CMOs and CCOs, the chief customer officers, to help the next generation of entrepreneurs avoid some of these problems. So we just completed our second fund, which is $80 million. There's 250 um, CROs and CMOs from these places uh, that are part of that, and we're trying to help the next generation of investment. We'll, we'll do about 20 investments out of that group. Uh, the Science of Scaling is currently in, I'll try to write that book next year, currently in a form of a 45-page ebook on the website. I'll get these slides to you, and you can, you can cruise that if you're interested. And then I know some of you have supported my book. It's been around for about a decade. Just note that the 100% um, of the proceeds are donated to build.org. Any build.org followers or participants, awesome. They're in about 12 cities. Uh, what they do is they partner with, honestly, the three worst performing high schools in each city. You know, kids that just probably didn't have the deck that we were given in the beginning of life. And they teach them entrepreneurship in their freshman year of, um, of high school with the hopes to get them through high school and to college. And it's super successful. 99% of the kids in that program graduate, and 85% uh, go to college. And I think uh, the book has given them over $100,000 so far. So thank you uh, for that support. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Like one of the things, man, you look like a completely different person than that, uh, with the haircut uh, and everything. <laughs> Is that the COVID haircut? Yes, sir. We'll go with that. All right, so, you know, after this, we're going to have everybody go to the main session and, you know, the rest of the stuff. You guys know the drill on that one. We'll be back again tomorrow. But for the folks who have any questions, I think, I think you're here for a few minutes, right? So you can just come on up here if you have questions. Just talk to Mark. Or again, Mark, thank you so much, guys. Let's give one more round of applause, Mark. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.